There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botger, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode three of the Shine On podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have an absolutely terrific, incredible show today. As always, legendary Dave, the executive <laughs> producer of the Shine Up podcast. He's on the other side of the mic. Dave, how are you? I'm great. I like that. Should I trademark that legendary Dave? Just like You Pat, should. Just like You Pat. are you are legendary. <laughs> you are absolutely legendary and you know what? Everybody should know it. Well, the legend grows today on Shine On because as you and I record this opening, we've already had the conversation with your guest and and stick around for the whole thing, listeners. It's just tremendous. And David, I got to tell you, I feel good as 2020 winds down, and look, who's not looking forward to putting this year behind us? I can't believe it's almost 2021, and I'm feeling optimistic as we head into the new year. That's my mindset. And maybe it's because I'm coming off a football weekend where my New York football giants somehow keep winning, <laughs> and despite being 5-7, and seven, they sit atop the absolutely awful and dreadful NFC East division. But look, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. I mean, look, I'll take anything Yeah, I could put a positive spin on in 2020. Oh, it looks like Giants and my beloved Patriots moving in opposite directions. I mean, the Patriots have won the last couple of games, which is great. But we're not used to being 6-6, six and six, and you're only one game behind the g I was going to say, I, yeah. I, I have to go back a long time to even say the Giants are in the same category. As the Patriots, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say it again because that oh, feels good to say. It hurts. That's, I mean, that feels good to say that the Giants and the Patriots were having the same season, Dave. Well, yeah, and and the Giants, you could arguably, are in much better shape because if the season ended today, they're in the playoffs. The Patriots are not. No, you're 100 oh, right. And how the tables? Are oh, you're right. Yep. You're right. Yep. And Dave, I got to tell you, I'm excited for episode three. There has been tremendous feedback. And comments and the emails have been coming in from the first two episodes. Yes, Evan, thanks to the numerous listeners who have already chimed in on this podcast. Let me read a couple of them for you, Evan. This is from Harley723. Uh, headline reads, insightful and honest. Evan speaks to the listener as though it were a one-on-one -on -one call with personal perspective. Deeply insightful with sincere honesty when it's needed most these days. Evan skillfully brings together serious issues of trust, divorce, Finances and communication to make it through tough times. Really excellent content. Very smooth delivery. You hear that? You're a smooth operator, Evan. Thank you so much. I love it. Thank no, you. I love hearing that. Thank you so much. <laughs> and let's read one more. This is from PJRD20. Shining podcast. When is the next one? Most informative. Enjoyed listening and learning in these uncertain times between the pandemic and the crazy politics. The perspective and conversation with Dr. Safer was genuinely insightful on so many levels. It was great to hear about ways to navigate polar opposites, political, whether in marriages, friendships, or business, along with everyday differences of opinions and not having to be the quote unquote winner. Anxious to hear the next podcast and who the next guest will be it was excellent and informative. So, and that's great because it's good to hear, you know, people are getting 
little tips about life and nuggets as well as just an entertaining listen. And thank you to, to, to those listeners and thank you to all the listeners. I am excited for today's guest. Dr. Phil Bleavy is our featured guest on today's episode of the Shine On Podcast. Dr. Phil is an executive coach and he's the president of PHL HP Consulting Group. He is a psychotherapist, a couples therapist, and he's an author with his wife, Dr. Lynn Levy, of the book, The Resilient Couple, Navigating Together Through Life. We are going to talk to Dr. Phil about the importance of communication and relationships across all areas, marriage, sports, business, and politics. We're going to have some fun as we do it. Have you ever wondered what makes certain professional sports teams and organizations successful? Ever wonder about the dynamic between star player and head coach? What is it that makes those relationships successful? And what is it about those relationships that causes them to fail and leaves sports fans wondering, what could have been? How many championships could we have won if only the chemistry was better? And we're going to get into it with Dr. Phil. We're going to talk about the Chicago Bulls and the last dance in the fantastic Bulls dynasty. We're going to talk about the New England Patriots and their history, the Patriot way, something that absolutely fascinates me. And Dave, I know is a topic close to your heart being up in Boston. Did you say, you did, you, the, did you say Patriots? So you had to rub that in. You had to play that clip because I mentioned in the beginning that the Giants are in the same sentence, you know, in the same category right now as the Patriots. That's right. But we're going to look at the Patriots and we're going to go deep into the culture of winning and success, the commitment and pursuit of excellence. And we're going to break it all down with Dr. Phil. And we're going to have fun. You know, we're going to get into this and much more with Dr. Philip Levy on the Shine On Podcast. All right, Evan, another episode. That means another edition of The Docket. And now, let's see what's on The Docket. All right. This may be a, a rapid fire, a hurry up, a no huddle edition of The Office. The Office, excuse me. The Docket. Because your your interview, which we're about to hear in moments, is so chock full of ingredients, it might as well be a Ruby Tuesday's salad bar. Uh, topical reference, that restaurant went out of business. All right, let's get to the docket. I Item, love it. Let's do it. Item one on the docket. Attorney Tom Girardi rejects paying spousal support to his soon-to-be ex-wife, and that is the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Erica Jane. Last month, the couple announced they had split after 21 years together. It's only been one month since Thomas Girardi, who is an attorney and founder of the L.A. firm of Girardi and Keese, and Erica Jane split, and the divorce proceedings are already getting messy. According to People Magazine, court documents filed on November 25th were a response to Jane's request to dissolve the marriage. Girardi, the attorney, asked that the court to uh, terminate her ability to award spousal support to his ex and that his attorney fees and costs be covered be covered by her. Interestingly, in 2017, the missus here had predicted that if the couple was to go their separate ways, it would all be in Girardi's favor. Let me tell you something. Let me be very clear. I'm married to a very powerful lawyer, she told Andy Cohen on his show. So your thoughts? We've got obviously the, I mean, it's a reality TV marriage here, but it may be interesting dynamic in that, 
you know, one of the people getting divorced is a powerful lawyer. And Dave, what's incredible to me and the takeaway is, sure, one of the parties getting divorced, he's an attorney. But the wonderful thing about the court system and the legal process, it's the greatest neutralizer. Mm-hmm. You could be an attorney, you could not be an attorney, but at the end of the day, this is going to come down to a very simple thing. What's in the prenup? Is there a waiver of spousal support and alimony in the prenup, or is there not? Is there a provision in the prenuptial agreement that calls for each party to be responsible for his or her own legal fees? So Tom Girardi could stand up and say all all he wants, but at the end of the day, the agreement's going to govern. Absent the agreement being unconscionable or being set aside by a judge in a court of law, if there's a prenuptial agreement, if it's executed, if the terms are fair and reasonable at the time the agreement was signed and at the time the divorce went forward, the judge is going to look at the agreement and what's in the agreement will dictate how they move forward. Very good. Let's move on to the item number two on the docket. Well, Las Vegas may be betting on a post-presidential divorce. That's right, Melania Trump and Donald. Bookies started taking bets on Election Day as gamblers considered a question on many people's minds. Will Melania Trump dump her husband when he is no longer president? And according to odds set and present just today on betonline.ag, the odds, Evan, if you'd like to place a bet, that Donald Donald and Melania will be divorced by 2021 the, if you say yes, the odds are plus 175, which means that you need to bet 170. Well, let me, let me get this right. No, if you bet 100, you would win 175. Not great odds. If you bet no, the odds are even worse. It's negative 250, meaning you would need to bet 250 to win $100. So neither one is a tremendous <laughs> long shot, but... Um, I've never bet on a divorce, Evan, and I suppose you probably haven't either, but your thoughts. I mean, I'll tell you what, I've never bet on a divorce, but, but this, this sort of reminds me of the Super Bowl, where Vegas puts out odds for everything. Yeah. How long is the national anthem going to be? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to win the coin toss? Why doesn't the singer just bet a million dollars on it and then hit it on the nose? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think yeah. the last bet last year I saw, which reminds me of this, is how long into the Super Bowl are you going to see a commercial for Doritos? I mean, I think, you know, and this is what it's come down to. I mean, people are putting bets on everything as a society, as a culture. Look, we love this stuff. You know, we love reading an article or hearing that Vegas is putting on, you know, putting down odds, you know, for are the, you know, is Melania and President Trump going to get divorced? Look, here's my prediction. If it's by 2021, I'm going to say no. She has stood by his side during these four years. I can see her standing by his side for the foreseeable future. You heard it here first, but uh, please don't rely on our podcast for your betting habits. You're on your own, people. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway. And that goes that goes for the coin toss uh, during the Super Bowl. Yeah, as well. and the and the national anthem and everything. Yeah, and what color the Gatorade bath is going to be? That's always a good one. Uh, all right, final item on the docket for this edition of the segment: a highly contested Miami divorce case is teed up to test a novel legal theory as a professional golfer's ex-wife has laid claim to half the value of his sponsorship deals, including money obtained 
obtained after their split. It's Argentine golfer Emiliano Grillo, who filed for divorce from Maria Macarena Pelez Alcaca. Geez, I can't pronounce her name, but I think it's funny. Her second name is Macarena. Um, this happened in great May. Song, great song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in May 2019, after about three years of marriage, the case has proved to be a difficult course, having already burned through one judge. They're on their second judge, I guess. Anyway, he's um, in the final leg of the, let's see, the 2015 tournament. Well, anyways, uh, let's forget that last little bit, but let's just say in just one tournament, he took more than more uh, than 461000 but he secured multiple sponsors, including Callaway Golf, and earned more than $10 million since going professional. So, in other words... It's it's not just his assets; it's his the value of his sponsorships and all the money he makes from that. So, your thoughts? My thoughts are this: two quick points. This is exactly the reason. If you are a professional athlete, you really want to consider having a prenuptial agreement. One of the benefits of having a prenuptial agreement before you get married, you could protect your income, protect your assets, and you can protect your income from all sources. Mm-hmm. contracts, endorsements, sponsorships. If there was an agreement in place, if there was a prenuptial contract in place, this wouldn't be an issue. And the second point I want to make is, in the absence of a prenuptial agreement, look, this income's on the table. This income's on the table, and you're seeing this play out, where the player's wife's going to you know, put forth a claim that she's entitled to receive a percentage of the income that comes from endorsements, sponsorships, future marketing deals. And there's legitimacy to that. I mean, the truth is without a prenuptial agreement, you're going to take a look at, are the money or the contracts, is that derived from effort that the player exhibited during the marriage? Is that from the playing days when they were married or not? And if it's money and income from when the athlete was playing, there's legitimacy to it. If this is down the road in future deals, I think it's a harder argument to make. You might say it's harder than learning the Macarena. I don't know. I I, I gotta tell you, Dave, I'm sure you uh you, you did a pretty good Macarena. I know, I just... <laughs> It was, I managed to screw up the Macarena, although it is fun. I got to admit, I've done a couple Macarenas in my day. I've never known anyone named Macarena. Now we do. I was going to say, screw it up. It had like three moves. I know, (laughs) but I got lost on the between two and three. Anyway, that will conclude another episode, another edition of The Docket. Thanks, Evan, as usual. Great stuff. Our featured guest this week on the Shine On podcast is Dr. Phil Levy. Dr. Phil, as he is known, has a unique background, combining a PhD in psychology and decades of running highly successful companies. Dr. Phil is nice enough to join us. I appreciate the time. Dr. Phil, how are you? I'm great. Um, Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, my mother would have been proud of the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, pleasure having you. You were an executive coach, a psychotherapist, and a couples therapist, and also an author. And I know from our conversations, you are a big sports fan as well. I want to start with the topic, and really the topic of communication, which from reading your book, The Resilient Couple, which is absolutely terrific, I know that you believe 
communication is one of the most important skills in relationships. And I want to ask you, what is it about communication that is so incredibly important? Well, I, I think, you know, I think people have an underlying need um, to feel understood, to feel heard, um, to feel valued and to feel respected. Um, and what I always share with people is that sometimes more often than what you are actually saying is how you say it. Um, and, and maybe I'll, I'll tell a quick story, if I may. Um, my wife and I were away once and we were, we were sitting in a window seat. I'll give you the image, you know, foot to foot, um, you know, being covered by blankets and looking outside. It was beautiful. The snow was coming down much as it is actually today. And um, we were each reading. And um, at one point, my wife started speaking to me and I didn't respond to her. And she said, you're not listening to me. And I repeated back to her everything that she said to me, at which point it made her more irritated with me to the point where um, she threw the, her magazine at me. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, you didn't listen. You're not hearing me. And I said, but I just repeated back everything. Um, and what it points out is that when people communicate, I think we communicate, first of all, on two levels. Um, we communicate on what I call a manifest level and a latent level. And the manifest level is the surface. I was listening to her, but she didn't feel heard. And the reason she didn't feel heard was because of my body language, my lack of eye contact. And so communication is probably one of the most important skills, but also one of the most complex skills. Um, so I think that's why. And I love that story. And to me, it hits home a really important point and follow-up question. What is it about communication and good communication and meaningful and productive communication? What is it that makes it so hard for people to have that type of conversation? Uh, I think it's, 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 it's threefold. One is that I think people have, you know, discomfort, um, anxiety, and, and fear around communicating, um, that they're going to offend someone, it's going to create a conflict. And so it leads to avoidance, and avoidance creates all sorts of problems. Um, the other thing is that um, I think that um, people often are focusing on what they're thinking and what they're about to say, rather than actually listening or focusing on what the other person is saying. Um, and so um, what happens is it, there's a breakdown in communication. I guess maybe I'll tell you another quick story, and then I won't tell any more stories. I love um, stories. Stories are absolutely great. I, I call this story the tongue-in-the-ear story. Um, and it goes I'm, in, I'm intrigued name. already. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I gave it that name, you know? Everybody can relate to it, I think, on some level, especially <laughs> if you're you know, a teenager. Um, but anyway, um, I was working with this woman in psychotherapy, and she asked me if her husband could come in with her. I said, sure. She brings him in. We say hello. They sit down. And she looks and she says, before we go any further, I just want to say, and she says to him, I hate when you put your tongue in my ear. And he looks at her and he says, Babe, I, I thought you loved that. And I said, just one second. I said, how long has he been putting his tongue in your ear? And she said, it's a true story, eight <laughs> years. And I said, have you ever told him you didn't like it? And she said, no. And I asked her, why not? 
And I think this answers your question. She said, I didn't want to offend him. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to get in a fight with him. So I said, so for eight years, he's been putting his tongue in your ear and you've hated it. And she said, yeah. I said, well, I'm, I'm happy you came here. Um, and and I, I think, you know, there's a lot of avoidance and that's why it's so hard. And there's one other thing I want to say. The other reason is not emotional. I think it's a lack of skills. And skills can be taught. Um, and I think that's a, another component of communication. Dr. Phil, I have so many follow-up questions and thoughts that are just running through my head after that tongue-in-the-ear story. But I'll ask this one. As a divorce attorney, as a psychotherapist, I work with couples. I work with individuals. You do the same. When communication or the lack of communication goes unaddressed for years, how hard does it become to repair the relationship and fix the problem of communication? It's a great question. Um, the longer something goes on um, in a negative way, um, the harder it is to repair it which is why I think people need, you know, professional intervention. Um, not because they don't necessarily know how to communicate, but because they avoid it or they don't know how to communicate in that relationship. And so it can, they're definitely reparable. Most relationships, if, if there's intervention early enough, are reparable. If both people are willing to work at it, but it does require a commitment. And so I always say to people, you know, the sooner you intervene, it's sort of like a building. If there's a, a small crack in the foundation of the building, if you let it go, eventually it's going to be hard to repair that building. But if you deal with it early enough, you'll be fine. Um, and so I think relationships require um, training, skill development, um, and improved communication all of which are achievable. Dr. Field, that's such a great point. And in, in when I see someone coming into my office, I've never had a client sit across from me and say, Evan, I communicate great with my husband. I communicate great with my partner. But often when you're sitting in my office and you're sitting across my desk and you're telling me everything in your whole life story, it's often too late. And my question for you is what steps and advice would you give someone to stay out of the divorce attorney's office? Um, again, a great question because, you know, I always say divorces are very expensive and I don't mean just financially. Um, they're emotionally draining. Um, they're very disruptive to one's life. And my, my first recommendation is that everybody needs help with communication and you know, getting getting some kind of communication training, I think, is very helpful. You know, there are certain skills that, that, that can be taught, um, you know, and I think, you know, the first is for people to become better listeners. Um, the, the second is for, to be able to reflect back what you heard. Um, and, and that's an important skill. The third, and this is, I think, the most important thing that I could ever tell anyone, and that is to demonstrate empathy. The next is to learn how to communicate, how to share in a constructive, positive manner. Um, it's not enough to tell people whether it's in a, in a marital relationship, a business relationship, 
It's not enough to tell people what's wrong. It's more important to be able to say to someone, you know, it would feel better to me if you said it this way. Or when you do it this way, it feels nicer. As opposed to, I hate when you do this. So it's, I think if we could teach people the art of constructive, positive communication, then I think uh, we, we can make real progress and a lot more relationships will survive. Dr. Phil, you mentioned the word empathy, and I want to talk about it. And I want to talk about empathy in politics. There was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal by Sam Walker. The article was from November 14th. And the title of the article was Joe Biden promises empathy, but that's a difficult way to lead. And the article goes on to talk about how this year, perhaps more than any other year, people are choosing and electing empathy. And this was a big focus of the Biden campaign in the months and weeks leading up to the election. And I want to ask you, given the current political climate and temperature and the times that we're living in with the coronavirus, social movements, are we as a society craving and looking for our leaders to be empathetic and needing an empathetic leader more now than ever before? Um, it's, I think it's a great question. Um, I'm a believer, by the way, that I love politics, and I'm a believer that in every presidential election is a reaction to the prior president. And so I think there was a reason Obama was chosen, and that was that people were looking to him for hope. Um, I think there was a reason Trump was elected, and that was because people were looking to shake things up. And they wanted us to be more businesslike. Um, and they wanted disruption. With um, you know, Joe Biden, the country wanted um, a feeling of um, greater empathy, greater compassion, um, bringing people together. I, I always say that the greatest problem I think we have in our society today is polarization. And I think, you know, President-elect Biden, I know all his deficits, as every person has deficits, no matter who the leader is, whether it's a CEO, a president, or a partner in a relationship. Um, but I think the country is, is, is starving to have their, their, um, their empathy reservoir refilled. Um, and I think that's because we're in the middle of, you know, I think COVID was a big part of it. Um, I think people are feeling, as a result of COVID, they're feeling a sense of uncertainty. They're feeling a sense of anxiety. They're feeling a sense of lack of control. Um, and what, what I think the message that Biden gave in a very simple way is that I want to bring us back to our, our greatest good as a country and as a people. I want to bring us together. And I'm going to care about you as a person. Um, and I mean, empathy by definition, my definition of empathy is the ability to experience something as if you were that other person, which means that a leader has to make the effort to understand where the people are at rather than just talking at them. And I love your phrase, empathy, reservoir, refilled, because I think it's true. And I want to ask you about leadership and whether it's the president of the United States 
the managing partner of a company, or a head coach in sports. How does a leader balance demonstrating strength and empathy at the same time? It, it is all about balance. And if we, if we go to either extreme in any situation, everything needs to be looked at as being on a continuum. Um, so strength, um, which can be demonstrated in many ways, there is no one way of demonstrating strength there, just as there is no one type of leader or one type of strong or empathetic leader. But I think we need a balance between showing people that we care about them as people first before we ask them to care about what we are asking them to do. So I, I think that um, you need a combination of demonstrating that you are strong enough, that you are confident enough, but that you are open enough to listen to other people and care about what they are experiencing. And we could look at that in sports. We could look at it in politics. We can look at it in business. We can look at it in relationships. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think people look for the same thing. And if you look at what do people look at, look for most, if you ask people, um, they'll tell you they, they look for empathy. Um, they look for compassion. They look for somebody who cares about them as a person. Now, um, I can tell you that I, I created something called Pillars of Leadership. Um, and and the, the pillars of leadership are, first and foremost, in a business setting, are to demonstrate that you have a vision. Because people aren't going to follow you unless you have a vision. The second is to surround yourself with people who share your vision. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to think exactly alike with your thinking. In fact, sometimes it's more important that there is divergent thinking, but they have to share your values. They have to buy into your vision. The third is that you have to be able to be a good communicator and communicate your vision. The fourth pillar is that you have to engage people and inspire them. And that's what's going to get them to buy in and to follow you. And the fifth is you need, you know, systems that ensure efficiency and accountability. And that's, I think, the combination of strength, you know, the systems, um, you know, the, the, the resilience that you demonstrate as a leader, but also the caring part, which is the, the, the culture and the values. Dr. Phillips, absolutely fantastic stuff. And you use the phrase buy-in. And I love the pillars that you mentioned and the qualities as a leader, as a coach, as a general manager. How do you get people to buy in and believe in your vision and believe in your mission and philosophy, whether it's sports, politics, or running a company? Well, um, it's the key to leadership. It really is. Um, if you look at uh, you know some of the the great sports coaches, and, and both you and I love sports, so um, I'm going to go there for a second. But if you, look, it. if you look at someone like, you know, Coach Pop in basketball, um, you know, if you look at Belichick, um, they're different, though they come from, interestingly enough, similar backgrounds. You look at a, a Pat Riley, who always said there's no I in team. You know, you look at the, you know, some of the great coaches, 
Um, I think the way they get buy-in is, is first and foremost, um, they, you know, they, they actually, you know, the old saying, they, they don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. And that is that they, they actually behave in a way that they espouse. The second is they have what I call a high do to say ratio. And that is that if they make a commitment to someone that they're going to do something, they do it. And in times of greatest stress or adversity, they double down on their their belief systems and their values. Um, And how do you get buy-in? Well, first and foremost, by doing those things. Second, by um, demonstrating that you care about people, um, demonstrating that you respect other people. Uh, demonstrating, you know, as we said before, empathy, that you care about them um, and what they're going through. Um, and um, that, you know, that the ultimate buy-in, I think, is that we, something I call distributive leadership or what I coined the term years ago, participatory management. The way you do it is you involve people in the decision-making process. And when they are involved in the decision-making process, they then have skin in the game. And therefore, they are invested in the success. They are going to put more effort into your being successful and to the positive outcome. And Dr. Phil, you mentioned Coach Pop, legendary Hall of Fame coach of the San Antonio Spurs. You mentioned Coach Belichick head coach, arguably the best coach in the history of the NFL. And some people, you know, may, may, may argue Vince Lombardi. We're going to talk about both Vince Lombardi and Coach Belichick and the Patriot dynasty and the Patriot way. But you look at Coach Pop and Coach Belichick, two coaches and, who have been at the top of their organization, the dynasties they have created in leagues that are built around parity, built around salary cap, the NBA draft, the NFL draft. When you look at these coaches, how have they been able to maintain a level of domination, consistency, players coming and going? How have they been able to do it and really find the right chemistry within their sports organizations? I think there are several ways that they all do it. Um, one is all of these highly successful people are extraordinarily disciplined. Um, they also work very, very hard and they serve as role models, which means they basically are not asking people to do what they're not willing to do. Um, the next is that they're usually great identifiers of talent. Um, so they, they see talent. And they also, you know, I have a saying, and and that is, you know, hire the person, teach the skill. And I think the great coaches and great leaders, that's what they do. Um, They see a Duncan, not just because he had great skills, but because of the person he was, because of the fact that when, when Pop criticized him very early on, publicly, no less, that he was able to take it and he used it as a motivator. It inspired him, which I think brings us to um, a few other reasons that they're successful. One 
is something I call the pursuit of excellence. And I want to differentiate that from the pursuit of perfection. I think the pursuit of perfection is a setup and it leads to failure uh, because none of us are perfect. And I've had this debate with some of my clients where they'll say, you know, we want to get this perfect. And I say, no, we don't want to get it perfect. We want to get it great. Um, I call that the pursuit of excellence. The fact that we truly um, encourage people to give it their best. Um, and when they give it their best, and this is another part, I think, of all good leaders, is the saying I have, we catch them being good. Everybody needs to be validated. Everybody needs to be reinforced. I don't care how, I don't care if you're Michael Jordan. I don't care if you're Tom Brady. Everybody needs to hear, wow, that was great. Um, and that's part of what a great leader does and how they inspire people. And the other thing is, no matter what, the people can come and go, but they maintain their basic value system. And they never give up on their values. They can change the way they implement it, but they never change their values. And then one final thing, and I'll stop on this, and that is, in spite of everything I just said, they're willing to be influenced by other people. And I think great leaders, as confident as they are, as much as they have their system and they want you to adhere to it, they're willing to hear from you if you come at them in a constructive, positive, and honest way. Dr. Phil, that, that, that's such a great point. And I want to stay with the theme of sports. And you mentioned Michael Jordan. You know, I don't know about you, but early in the pandemic, we were, were without sports. Life changed. Things shut down. The NBA season was halted. The NHL stopped as well. And my favorite tradition in all of sports, opening day, which growing up was, you know, a tradition in my family, that was pushed off to July. I was craving sports. And when ESPN pushed up the release of The Last Dance, which was really an inside look into the Chicago Bulls dynasty, I was thrilled. I mean, this was the Super Bowl. I mean, if you were craving sports, and, and all of us were, the airing of episode one on Sunday night in April was, it was incredible. And I couldn't get enough. I mean, as a Knicks fan, and I want to talk about the Knicks later on, but I, you know, it pains me to say it, but I couldn't get enough of, of watching the glory days of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And I want to talk about the last dance and I'll call it the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls dynasty, because to me, while this may have been a documentary and series to so many people, it was much more to me. There were so many takeaways from the last dance. And it was really a behind the scenes look into people, personalities, relationships, egos, sports culture, and leadership. And I want to start by asking you about Phil Jackson, who was the head coach of the Bulls. And he's often referred to as the Zen master for his Zen approach to leading. When The Last Dance came out in April 2020, there was a great article in the New York Times by NBA journalist Mark Stein. And I want to read you the quote 
and ask for your thoughts. There's a quote from Steve Kerr, who was a former player of Phil Jackson, played on the Bulls, and now Steve Kerr is the legendary coach, championship coach of the Golden State Warriors. Kerr says, I think people always underestimated Phil's talent as a coach, but he was so brilliant and unique in his style. Kerr continues, with all the fame and notoriety that surrounded the team and Michael in particular, Phil was just an incredible leader and coach. Very few, if any people, would have had the right skill set and temperament to keep a team like that together and moving forward. When you hear a quote like this, what's your takeaway? Well, I think Steve Kerr is a very, very bright guy um, and also a great coach. And, and a, lot of, a lot of great coaches and leaders, um, there are things that happen early in their life. I think we all know what happened with Steve Kerr's you know, father and how he had to overcome the challenges. And, and I think a guy like Steve Kerr um, demonstrates resilience. I think a guy like um, Phil Jackson demonstrates resilience. Um, I want to comment on a bunch of the points you just made. One is that um, I think that he, he, what he did is he had the, Phil Jackson had not only the right skill, um, because Phil Jackson was a good player. What people don't, a lot of people don't remember is that he was actually, a, I think he led the, the nation in scoring and rebounding. I'm not 100% sure when he was in college. Um, but he, he had very high statistics. He came to the pros and he was good, but he wasn't great. But he had a certain attitude. Being around Phil Jackson made you better. Being around Steve Kerr made you better. Being about around Michael Jordan on the court made you better. Um, but let's remember, Michael Jordan was not the number one draft pick that year. Michael Jordan wasn't great when he was a freshman in high school or a sophomore in high school. What I think is, is most important here is that they all were people who faced adversity and they all were resilient um, because they became stronger because of that. And it's a combination of, as Steve Kerr said, skill and temperament. And temperament is something you develop over years and years and years. Um, you know, the other thing I want to say is that, you know, uh, winning teams, especially dynasties, um, are really about a culture. And, you know, I always say a, a culture, whether it's in a business, a corporate culture or on a team, a culture is what happens when no one is looking. That's what a culture really is. It's, you know, it's the values, it's the standards, it's the mores, but it's really what happens when no one's looking, how people treat one another when no one is looking. Um, and I think sports, you know, being a metaphor for life, um, you know, is the ultimate place for us to, you know, work on our communication skills, our leadership skills. And, you know, that coming on TV at that time was awesome. I mean, it really was. I watched it with my grandson who's 13 and loves basketball. You know, the theme of his bar mitzvah was, you know, hoops and hooping it up and all that. Um, and we watched it together. And, you know, he loved Jordan. And we talked, though, about it. And, you know, we talked about how sports are a metaphor for life, but also how it's an escape, um, which I think we all need. It's a place of, it's a release. And it's filled with traditions. 
And, you know, traditions are important. And I think they're part of what keeps us going, um, especially in times like COVID-19, but at all times. Um, we look forward to opening day. We look forward to the final four. We look forward to the, you know, the World Series. We look forward to the Super Bowl. You know, you could almost plot out your year based upon sporting events. And one of the things I tell people who run businesses is that they should have a calendar for their year um, so that there is a tradition to the year. And that will help people, I think, align with the company and have more buy-in. Dr. Phil, there's so much to unpack there. And I think you mentioned the conversation and discussion you had with your, your grandson about sports as a metaphor for life. I can now thank you for now all, you know, every year, you know, growing up, you know, from elementary school throughout high school, my teachers thought I was sick, you know, on opening day. And now thanks to you, I think they now know I was uh, with the family, you know, at uh, Yankee Stadium. But uh, hopefully they forgive me. But you mentioned culture and what happens when no one's looking. And I'll tell you, I, I you know, when I watched The Last Dance, I don't think, I mean, I, I didn't realize how hard of a job Phil Jackson had. I mean, he was, argue, he was the head coach of arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. And we can have the debate, LeBron versus Jordan, all day long. He managed Jordan. He managed Dennis Rodman's personality and yeah. trips to Las Vegas to spend time with Carmen Electra the yeah. night before a championship game. He handled Scottie Pippen, who was an underpaid star, arguably the second best player in the league to Jordan, and he was grossly under, underpaid. And he did this while he was at odds with Jerry Krause, the general manager of the Chicago Bulls, who wanted him out for years because he felt Jackson was getting too much credit. How did he hold it together? How did he make it work for all these years and not only make it work, but win? Well, I think there's a number of ways he did it. Um, and number one, I think he had a, an incredible passion. And great leaders have to have passion. I think that's why he didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't do well with the Knicks because he didn't have passion because he wasn't into being, you know, an administrator. Um, he was, in, he was a coach. Um, and, um, you know, and his personality, his Zen personality was not compatible with the culture of the Knicks. So, you know, a person can be highly successful in one place and not somewhere else. Um, the, the second thing is that, you know, the remarkable thing is that he kept the team together, as you described, under this adversity. And I mean, think about it. Um, what, he, what he was able to do, I think, was to convince people that if they bought into the system, you know, the, the triangle offense, right, you know, that they would be better and that they would win. And you know what? Every time he won, it reinforced the belief that team mattered more. And um, uh, can I tell a quick story? Please go ahead. So as, lo as long as it's not about the trial, tri uh, you know, the, the triangle offense, because I don't, I don't think it succeeded or worked uh, anywhere else. But <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful story. Um, it's not mine. 
Um, there's this story about how many years ago, um, you know, the, the, there's Cape Kennedy, and it used to be called Cape Canaveral. And they were in the process of, you know, us trying to beat out the Russians um, to get to the moon, right? And we were spending fortunes on this. So the, the, the senators and congresspersons didn't want to contribute money anymore. They felt that it was, they, it was wasteful. And so what they did is they invited all these, you know, leaders from, from politics to come there and to see and to be wined and dined. And there was this um, senator who was a Texan, who was a big, good old boy and wearing a Texan hat and he's walking through there and he passes by a young man who is a maintenance person. It's a true story. And he's sweeping up. And the Texan walks up to him and he says, um, you know, he goes, young man, I can't do Texan. He goes, I'm going to come out Brooklyn no matter how I do it. No, that was pretty good. You know, part Brooklyn, part, uh, you know, part Texas. <laughs> he says, young man, he goes, what are you doing? And the young man says, true story, I'm working on putting a man on the moon. And the Texas senator looked and said, by God, he said, this is wonderful. And that's where the support came from. It is the most wonderful example I've ever heard of getting people to buy in and believe that they were essential in whatever they did to the success of the team. So whether it's a, a, a company, a business, whether it's a law firm, whether it's an accounting firm, a bank, you know, whatever, or a sports team, you have to convince Scottie Pippen that it's more important to be the second best player on this team rather than the first best player on another team. Or you need to convince, you know, Steve Kerr to focus on those 16 minutes of his where he buries that three-point shot and he is critical to their success. Or you convince, you know, John Stockton to run the pick and roll with, you know, Malone um, because together, I have a saying that I used in my company when I ran my company, together we're better. If you can convince people that together we are better, then you are Phil Jackson. Then you are, you know, a great leader. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was in L.A. Oh, God, I, you know, it was well, be, well before COVID. Um, and I was staying at this hotel, you know, visiting my grandkids and whatever. And I see this guy. And you know who he is, um, you know, and it was Dennis Rodman. And I'm, my grandson's with me. Um, and I said to him, come, come with me. And he, Dennis Rodman was having breakfast. We were having breakfast also outdoors. And I walked up and I said, Mr. Rodman, would it be okay with you? If it's not, we'll walk away. Uh, my grandson here doesn't know who you are, but I want to tell him not only who you are, but why you are special. Um, and he's a big basketball fan. I said, could we spend a few minutes? And, you know, he had the cap on down and he <laughs> all over and he, and he, he had that voice and everything. Sure. And typical, he, typical Rodman fashion. Absolutely. It, it was. And yeah. he looked, he, he mumbled. He, he goes, yeah, he goes, you know, <laughs> he goes, sit down. He goes, he goes, and he says to my grandson, what's your name? And my grandson said, you know, he, he said his name, his name is Hunter. He said, you know, I'm Hunter. And he said, Hunt, do you like basketball? And he said, 
I love basketball. He said, are you good? He goes, I think I'm good. I said, Dennis, if I may, tell him what it takes to be really good. And Dennis Rodman said, you have to put in effort. He said, because most people are not Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm glad and, his answer was effort and not going to Vegas and riding motorcycles. Well, but. <laughs> you know, you know he wasn't going to say that. That's great. That's, that's great. And you, you mentioned, I mean, two phenomenal stories. And you also mentioned the Knicks and Phil Jackson, who went from the Bulls and, you know, really presiding over just an amazing run with Chicago, went to L.A., was the head coach, won championships, two megastars, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant. And he then went to the New York Knicks, didn't succeed in New York. And I wonder how much of that was Jackson, how much of that was the lack of talent, how much of it was the triangle offense that didn't work in New York because they didn't have the talent. But I also wonder how much of that was Jim Dolan, who's the owner of the New York Knicks. And we're talking a lot about the Chicago Bulls, and I grew up a Knicks fan. And I'm looking in New York and at the Knicks organization. It's been a long a long time since then. I mean, it's been ages. It's been, it's been, it feels like an eternity. And I think they made some changes now, you know, with Leon Rose, the ex-agent from CAA, who is now calling the shots. But I want to ask you about the Knicks. How would you fix that? I mean, you have an owner who is at odds with everybody. You have an owner who likes controlling the shots, even if he is totally removed from the day-to-day operations. And, you know, what was once upon a time the place that everyone wanted to come, the arena that everybody wanted to play in, in some ways has become the laughing stock of the NBA. You know, it, it points to so much. I will tell you just briefly that I grew up a Celtics fan, which tells you how old I am. Um, I mean, like, now's the time to switch. Now's the, I mean, the Celtics, are, Boston's doing great. You, you know, it's uh, uh, now's the time to switch. We won't hold it against you. Um, now I'm sticking with the Knicks. I'm a loyal fan. But when I was, I was a Celtic fan when I was very young because there were very few teams. And, and I loved Red Auerbach. And part of it was very honestly, um, I thought he was a character. And I thought he was a great character. And, and, and I won't go into that in greater detail. But I'll say this. Leadership starts at the top and leadership matters. And um, when you have a leader who's angry and controlling, you can be assured that they will not win. They, they do not win. Um, you know, you need a leader who is optimistic, who is positive, um, who can be strong and needs to be strong. Um, but, you know, you, you, you need someone. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of likability, and I think people underestimate it. Um, you know, people are very successful with average talent. If they work hard, um, if they demonstrate the good qualities we talked about before, and if they're likable. Um, I think the reason Jackson failed was, number one, it was the wrong fit. Um, you know, first, the, you know, the leadership of the Knicks, you know, he's into being Zen, and they're into being autocratic. You don't have, it doesn't work. It's like two people getting married 
and having those two views and, and trying to raise children together. It will not work. The second is he didn't have the talent. Um, the third was his fault. All right. And that was he he was rigid. Um, now, I don't think it would have mattered anyway, but he wasn't open to figuring out how to use what was there. He had his model in mind and his attitude was they had to fit into his model. Well, leadership is not just about getting people to fit into your model. It's about, as I said earlier, the willingness to be influenced by other people. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's all of those reasons that he didn't fail. And, Mo, and the other thing, as I said before, he didn't have passion. He didn't want to do this job, whether he, I don't think he needed the money, um, whether he wanted to come back to New York to get away from his relationship, um, whether he wanted some extra, you know, I guess, you know, someone offers you, I don't know, was it 21 million dollars um you know it's hard at to least i mean you, you you know you mentioned the money you mentioned his relationship with with, with genie buzz who was out in la i mean th there's a million different reasons he could have come to new york but you know the success that he had in chicago in yeah. la yeah. and he just didn't have it here in new york and i think one of the takeaways i mean you know after the last dance i mean phil jackson was a big winner to come out of the last dance because yeah. His reputation, because, you know, we're, we're all human beings and, and what happens most recent, you tend to remember. And it was really the legacy. You know, when people think back to Phil Jackson, it was thinking to what happened in New York. But in many ways, the last dance was a remembrance, you know, going back in time to his brilliance with Chicago and then L.A. He was lucky. He really was that the last dance occurred because he would have gone out um, where his legacy would have been as a failure. And instead, um, because of the timing and timing is important, uh, you know, it came out. Um, there wasn't really sports. So last dance was very powerful. And he was portrayed as as the Zen master, um, as the, you know, the great leader who who cared about people who had a, had a culture, who had a model, um, who knew how to bring people together. Uh, and that's how I think, you know, people will remember him. And, and listen, ultimately, what he has is, you know, I'm doing this visually, no one else can see it, but he has all those rings. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a heck of a statement on, you know, your resume. No, you're absolutely right. Look, you know, in professional sports, you know, there's a saying that winning is everything. And you look to the rings. And so I want to ask you about winning and championships in rings. When I look at Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, they have rings. They won. And I think winning covers up a lot. Yes. And we're seeing that, you know, Brady's in Tampa Bay. Belichick is still in New England. You know, we'll save that conversation for another day, what happened <laughs> at the end of that relationship. Uh -huh. Um but I look at Brady and Belichick, and I want to ask you two questions. When you have a relationship, or how important is that relationship between head coach and star quarterback? And separately, when I look at a guy like Aaron Rodgers, who has all the talent in the world, phenomenal quarterback, gifted right arm. If I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, I'm looking at Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers as his 
you know, run in Green Bay will come to an end at some point. I mean, they drafted a quarterback in the first round this year instead of a wide receiver. Why couldn't Aaron Rodgers win more? There's talks about the relationship or lack thereof between Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy when he was the head coach and the different offensive coordinators. But I look at Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, and I compare and contrast to Aaron Rodgers. And if I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, when his run is is done, I'm wondering where the rings are. And I, you know, um, I guess a perfect uh, contrast also is if you look at the Chiefs right now, um, why are the Chiefs winning? Why do they have the potential to be a dynasty? And by the way, you know, dynasties, you know, are, are to, to maintain. So um, that's what was so incredible about, you know, the Lakers, you know, the, the, the Bulls, you know, um, the Yankees, you know, all those dynasties. Um, you know, if you look at it, what Rogers didn't have is he didn't have what we call, you know, his Batman, you know, his Robin to his Batman. He didn't have that. He didn't have that that thought partner that I talk about in business. Everybody needs a thought partner um, because he didn't have a coach with whom he felt a connection. Um, Brady had that connection with Belichick. They might not loved each other, but they had that connection. They had a shared vision. They had a shared passion for winning. Um, and they were willing to do whatever it took to win. Um, you know, you look at the Chiefs right now, they have a great quarterback, as good as you've ever seen. They have a great coach, who, by the way, was not a great coach until he got Mahomes, right? They have incredible receivers. They have great running backs. Um, their defense is a little suspect, but their offense is so powerful that it could overcome everything. But in any given day, you don't know. And I think, you know, when you look at Rodgers, um, the relationship wasn't there. The chemistry wasn't there. And the team wasn't invested in him the way they should have been. They should have, when you have Rodgers on your team, what you should have done is drafted some offensive firepower three years ago, two years ago, this year. You, you, you know, I mean, you just didn't give him the resources he needed. And that's why, if we go back to Phil Jackson, I wouldn't care if he was coaching the Knicks, he would have failed because he wouldn't have had the resources and he wouldn't have had the partnership. I mean, I want to say Patrick Mahomes is one of the best – I mean, to me, he's the best player in the NFL right now. He, he is gifted and what you want as a quarterback or from your quarterback. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. I think the Chiefs are going to repeat again this year. And you mentioned, you know, Belichick and the relationship with Brady and buying in. But what the Patriots had, too, it was it was the Patriot way. Belichick yeah. can find guys who didn't succeed for other teams. He would bring them in, you know, people who – didn't have the right chemistry with other people. You know, Randy Moss came in, yeah. you know, and, you know, Belichick's attitude was, if you don't buy into my way, my system, well, guess what? You're not going to be here on Sunday. And you're right. Aaron Rodgers didn't have the relationship that Brady had with Belichick. And whether it was a close relationship or not, it was a relationship that was built on mutual respect and trust and that filtered down to the rest of the team and the rest of the players. You are so on target. Um, you know, what, what the great coaches can do, um, 
especially those that have built dynasties, is they convince people that if you come here, you will be a winner. You're, you're a great talent, but if you want to be a winner, you come here. Um, what did LeBron do with AD? He said to him, you are, you're an incredible talent, but if you want to be a winner, come join me and together we will be winners. Um, that's really what it was about with Belichick and Brady. That's what it's about with all the great combos. And you're, you're absolutely right that it's built upon respect, mutual respect, and trust, which is the key to all relationships when you think about it. Um, Look, and- Belichick, Belichick got Julian Edelman, you know, to, to go from playing wide, you know, quarterback to, to, to now star Pro Bowl wide receiver because he was able to get Edelman to buy in to, to, to the Patriot way, to Belichick's way, and Edelman and Brady developed a bond that it was built on trust. Brady could drop back, throw a slant, and Edelman was there. You know, the key, when you look at it, the great quarterbacks never throw to a receiver. They throw to a spot. Um, they know yep. that the person's going to be there. It's based upon trust. You know, um, when Unitas threw to Bobby Orr, you don't even know who those people are. Uh, I'm, I, I'm a sports junkie. Of course I know who they are. You know, when, when um, you know, the, you know, when uh, Hadel threw to Lance Allworth, I'm going to really test you here. Um, you know, when they, they, you, got, you got me at that one. <laughs> they, they threw, his, by the way, Allworth's nickname was Bambi, and he was one of the greatest receivers of all time. But anyway, but the key thing is, it's a matter of trust. You throw to the spot. Um, you, you know, the, the offensive lineman, you know, who's the left tackle for a right-handed quarterback, the right-handed quarterback never wonders whether his left side is protected. He trusts that that left tackle is protecting him. And that left tackle won't let him get hurt or injured, even if they have to, you know, tear, tackle the person or, you know, get a holding penalty. They won't let him get hurt. Um, so it is really about trust. And, and the other thing is that, you know, it's really about a winning attitude and, and a belief that, you know, if you come here, together we will be winners. And that's spectacular. It really is. And the great ones, they do it. And I think that's, by the way, why Belichick and Brady, my opinion is neither one of them, I said this at the beginning of the season, neither one of them will win this year. Um, because their chemistry was what helped them win. You know, even, even in the last few years, Brady was, you know, past his prime, but, you know, together they, they had that chemistry and that's what made, that's what distinguished them and differentiated them. Who do you give the odds to getting back to the Super Bowl first, whether this year or next year, Brady or Belichick? I don't think either of them. So uh, I know it's, it's, an un, it's a cop-out, but it's, if, if I had to bet, I'd bet on Belichick. But I don't think either one can because Belichick has to rebuild. And it's going to take – you can't rebuild in one year. Um, and I think that uh, Brady just – you know, he, he, you know, he was the GOAT, um, you know, in his time. And I think, though, that it's not his time anymore. And I also don't think he has chemistry with his coach. Um, this coach is more of a gunslinger type coach 
And Brady is not, he's, he was never a gunslinger, but he's certainly not a gunslinger now. You know. No, and look, I can't blame him. He went from New England to Tampa. You know, he hooked up with Bruce Arians, who you're right, you know, was a quarterback guru, but he was a different type of quarterback coach yeah. that at this stage of Brady's career, that's not a match made in heaven. You know, yeah. when you talk about chemistry and you talk about loyalty and trust in the sports context and, you know, we've gone through, you know, the business context and marital relationships and when it works it's a beautiful thing, but when it doesn't, you really see relationships at their core just fail. And I want to ask you, what could people do differently at the beginning of their relationship when you know there's a potential issue? How do you address it at the beginning? Um, you know, it, it goes back to the, I'm going to use the term culture in a different way. Um, the culture of the relationship has to be that we're going to be respectful of one another, that we're going to communicate with one another, that we are going to assume, and this is critical, we are going to assume good intent even when the impact is hurtful. So if my wife does something that hurts me or I do something that hurts her, which of course rarely happens. Um, but <laughs> Well, I'm going to ask you about your book that you wrote with your wife and, uh, you know, well, but, uh, we'll see. But there, there, has to, there has to be that trust that, you know, the intent was, you know, that it was well and that we, we're, we're all working towards the same goal. And I, I think, you know, one of the things also early on in relationships is this. Um, I'm a big fan. My wife wrote a, a book on premarital, you know, therapy. And I think, I think, you know, people underestimate what's required to make a, a relationship work, um, no matter whether it's a straight relationship, a gay relationship, an interracial relationship, interfaith relationship, whatever it is. Relationships are challenging. Um, and so, therefore, I think, number one, people have to make a major commitment to that relationship. And if you make that commitment, then you have a shot. The second is, I think you need to get some help early on. The same way we do, you know, you don't, you don't put someone in a car and say to them, go practice driving. You know, you give them some lessons first and you make sure they learn in a safe place how to drive before you put them on the highway. Well, why do we think people should just get into marriages and, and it should work out well? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the mistake I think people make. And then you end up in my office you know, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And again, nobody ever says, Evan, I communicate great. You know, yeah. we don't talk. Correct. I feel in the dark. I Correct. mean, and that's, and I think the, the coronavirus in the past several months has really exposed a lot of holes in relationships okay. because now people are forced to talk forced to have conversations, forced to communicate. Look, people would wake up, they would go to work, take the kids to school, you know, whatever they would do, people wouldn't see each other. Now all you do is see your spouse. You know, that's why, if you look at it, why are most, why do most divorces happen at certain times in life, separate from COVID? You know, they happen when, at times of transition, um, when all of a sudden the kids go away to, to, to say camp or to college or something like that. And now you're left the two of you and you realize that all of your conversations were around the kids. 
or you spent maybe a half an hour a day together because you you worked and you had you know took care of your kids and you did all that. The number one danger in relationships is people stop talking, and um, that's why you know a lot of people who come to see me couples, it's not necessarily even because they're in such dire straits. It's because they realize that they've stopped talking, and what we do is by them being in my office with me, they learn to talk to one another again. And we do role plays and we do psychodrama and they learn the skills of how to do it. Um, I think you're right, by the way, COVID, you know, is going, is exposing and is going to continue to expose, um, you know, a lot of the problems in marriages, you know, 9-11 resulted in, in a big boom of children, um, you know, babies being born. Um, I think COVID probably will be very good for your business um, and, uh, and, and probably mine. Um, and listen, we need to make a living also. Um, you know. <laughs> no, and you touched on it. You know, it, it, to me, what I've said is, and I touched on it on the second episode of the Shine On podcast, but, but, but the truth is, I don't even think we've seen how COVID is going to impact the divorce business, the divorce rate, you know, your business, your practice. You know, every day I wake up and, you know, people talk about this different article. You know, COVID-19 is causing divorce rates to skyrocket. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I was asked that question, I could retire. But but the truth is, I don't even think we've touched or scratched the surface on what we'll see when things go back to normal, whatever that looks like. Because right. then the kids are at school, parents yeah. are back at work, yes. and we're going to go back to old habits, not talking, not communicating, going out to restaurants, bars, gyms, people are going to crave more social interaction outside the home than ever before. And that to me is when we'll see the big spike in divorces. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think we're going to see uh, from a mental health perspective, tremendous increases in anxiety and depression. Um, I think this is going to stress people and their, to their limits. You're going to see financial problems. Because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, we'll just spend, we'll do that because we have to now. And then they're going to have to deal with it on the other end. Um, there's, gonna, there's probably a lot of avoidance going on right now. And so this is going to test us as a society. And uh, the best advice I think I can give people is this, um, you know, get professional help early on, early on, um, you know, don't wait until you know you you look at that person when you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, "I hate you." Um, you you know no, say you know I don't like the way this feels, and say what can I do about it. Doctor Phil, it's a great point. And as we wind down on the Shine On podcast, I want to finish up with with two topics, and one is mental health, and you just touched on that, and I want to combine sports mental health, and really talk about education and awareness. In the past several months, there's been some NBA players, Kevin Love, Brandon Marshall, a former NFL star, recently star Atlanta Falcon, tight end Hayden Hurst spoke out about depression and his own struggles and battles with depression in his family. What more could be done to increase the awareness, not only for professional athletes, but really at the youth level. How do, how do we get the message out there 
that people, children, athletes can talk about their feelings and the importance of doing so? I think that the way we do it, we, we give children the opportunity to talk. Um, and, and the way we do that, for example, would be if you're a coach of a high school basketball team, football team, whatever it is, you know, soccer, lacrosse, whatever it is, um, that you devote some time every week where you sit down with the team and say, you know, how's it going? Um, how are you feeling? How is school going? How are things at home? You know, and, you know, and if you can't do it as a coach, you bring in, you know, a counselor who's trained to do that because then you give a message to people that their feelings matter and that communication is a priority. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, you look, you know, Kevin Love and what he'll tell you is that he never talked about his feelings because he wasn't really encouraged to or even allowed to. And I think we need to increase awareness that everybody has feelings, that your feelings are important and matter, and that um, we're going to encourage this. And if somebody's having a problem, we're going to assist them with that. And, you know, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. To be a great leader, you have to convince someone that you care about them as a person first. And what better way to convince someone, a, a young person, that we care about them as a person than asking them how they're feeling, how their life is at home, what, what's troubling them, and to try to help them see that there are options. Because there is no more painful feeling than to feel isolated and alone. Such a brilliant point. And, you know, look, you know, who knows the, the, you know, what sports is going to look like in 2021. You touch on some incredibly important topics. And there's been articles that have been written. Players have been outspoken. Even these megastars making 20, 30, $40 million a year. What life was like to live in a bubble? You know, for the NBA, you know, players played in Orlando, lived in a bubble. They were limited on what family they can see. You know, I think players may have been allowed, you know, one family member to come. If you were a referee or a coach, you know, and I think the Denver Nuggets head coach was outspoken about this. You couldn't see anybody. And if this is how sports are going to be played in 2021, I think there's a real concern. Yeah, isolation is very dangerous, and we have to figure out a way to keep people safe. You know, I, I, I say that physical distancing is good. Um, social distancing is not good. Emotional distancing is not good. We need to have safe physical distancing. We need to protect ourselves, but we still need to feel an emotional connection. And, you know, um, you, you're right. You know, um, money doesn't buy happiness, but certainly it makes life easier. So someone who's making $40 million, you know, or 20 million or a million or 500,000 has resources available to them that, that the person who makes 30,000 doesn't. Um, and, but for everybody, if you're making 40 million a year, you still need to feel connected somewhere in your life. 
No, you're, abso- think- you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And the message that these players and athletes, by speaking out and encouraging younger players, wonderful the, your children, you know, to, to send a message that talk, talk about your feelings, communicate, you know, we're, we're, you know, outspoken about it. I think it's such a wonderful thing. I want to, lastly, I want to ask you about your terrific book, The Resilient Couple, which you wrote with your wife, Dr. Lynn Levy. I'm sure most people listening to this are going to think to themselves, sometimes I struggle to watch TV with my wife, let alone write a book with my wife. So I have to ask you, what was that experience like for you? You know, it it was amazing. And and I want to tell you, I don't want to paint the picture that my wife and I have this perfect relationship. We've been married for 43 years, but we work at it very hard. And we've had moments, you know, we've had challenges. Um, Anybody who tells you they haven't, I think, is not doing you a service. Um, So I I think um, what happened was, you know, the reason we wrote the book, I, I just want to share is this. We went to a series of three weddings over a period of a few months, um, which was unusual for us. And at every wedding, I turned to my wife and I said, look how happy they look. Look how happy they look. Look how happy they look. And then I turned to her, I said, what happens? And we, we talked about it and we said, you know, I don't know what happens. And I said, I think what happens is people don't have the skills to maintain the, the, the passion, the happiness, the, the, the intimacy, the communication. They don't have the skills. Um, and so we decided what we do is we'd write this book so as to help people have the skills and to read it before they get married, um, to read it again when they get married, to read it again on their first anniversary. You don't have to buy it. I'm not selling the book over and over again. Just buy it once and keep reading it. Uh, <laughs> no, and- but you're right. There's, there's such incredible you know, life lessons, you know, lessons about relationship and trust and communication. You know, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, but, but the, the lessons that you can learn from it, and you mentioned hard work. I don't think people realize marriage is work. It's effort. You know, yes. it, it really is something that you have to enter into with that understanding. And if you don't, it's not good. No. And most people don't enter it that way. Look, most people come together as couples because there's a passion between them, right? Um, Then they have other needs that are driving them. Uh, Maybe a need for security, a need for support, whatever it is, right? But what, what is essential is that they understand if they want to sustain the relationship, if they want the relationship to evolve, and it needs to evolve, relationships are dynamic, they don't stay the same, then what they have to be able to do is have the willingness to make it a priority in their lives. You can't say we're going to spend an hour a week together, and that's going to be enough. It isn't enough. Any more so than you would say that if you had a, uh, a 10-year-old son, that you would spend an hour a week with your son. And wonder, you know, if you spend an hour a week, you'd wonder why we don't have a close bond. Well, because it takes more than an hour a week. And it's not just the time, obviously, it's the quality. But you have to make that commitment. You have to develop the skills. And you have to make it a priority. And you have to believe that this is important enough in your life that almost nothing 
is more important. My wife said something to me once that was a great lesson. Um, I've learned a lot from her. Um, and she said to me once, you know, that I was a great father and my kids were my top priority. And she said, as they get older, you're going to have to remember to make me your top priority. My thought was, what? Um, you know, <laughs> it, but, but she was absolutely right. And part of what has happened is we have evolved and grown as a couple. And, you know, our relationship has changed, but the bond has gotten even stronger. And I think, you know, when we first sat down to write the book, it was funny because I, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm technologically challenged and I still type with two fingers and she types very fast, not because it's a, a gender issue, but because she's a college professor and so she has to be doing it all the time. And we sat down at this computer, one computer, two chairs, and we back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. And we came up with this model. And the model was, she said, he said, we said. And until we got to the we said, there wasn't, we didn't go forward. So she had her view, I had my view, but we had to come up with the we said. And that's really the key. And, you know, it's, it's all about a willingness to be influenced by the other person. And so when we were writing it, what would happen is I would say, that makes no sense, whatever. And, she, and I, she'd say this and I'd say, okay, what do you want to say? And she'd say, I don't know. I'd say, oh, give me a chance. Just move over. And I'd start typing with my two fingers. And she'd say, just say it and I'll type it, you know. And <laughs> I think that's, that's part of what made it work for us because I leave you with one term and I call it complementary skills. Um, and that is that I think it's important to pick someone who enhances you and complements your skill set. Now, Dr. Phil, that's absolutely brilliant stuff, an incredible lesson. And that lesson and many more could be found in your fantastic book, The Resilient Couple, that you wrote with your wife, Dr. Lynn Levy. And I'll tell you, you mentioned the wedding story. You know, you were going to three a month. You know, my wife and I, you know, we dated for several years before we got married. There was a, a point in time where you know, every wedding invitation I got in the mail, I had to hide. I couldn't go to another wedding. <laughs> you know, the, the questions and follow up after that was, uh, yeah, no, your advice is definitely better than uh, what I did. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's tough. It really is. But it's, you know, it's well worth the investment. Um, you know, whether it's marriage, whether it's a business partnership, um, whether it's, uh, you know, a quarterback and the, and the coach, um, it's, I think it's well worth the investment because ultimately, you know, together we are better. Um, people, human beings by nature are joiners. They need to be with others. And we just have to figure out how to utilize communication and all the other skills to be together in a way that will enhance one another and the relationship. Dr. Phil, wow. This was absolutely fantastic you were terrific incredible insight thank you for appearing on the shine on podcast david what a show tremendous i felt like you guys could have talked for four more hours i could have kept going i mean I, yeah. I i couldn't get enough of dr phil you know whether it's relationships marriages sports i could have talked uh jordan and the bulls in the last dance for for hours yeah he is such a, a wonderful 
command of of storytelling and he just seems like a genuine nice guy it was great to hear you guys really just enjoy yourselves in that conversation because that's the and just if ever we needed something like that this is the time it goes to show you know don't stop reaching out to people and connecting because and that was kind of his lesson which is great no absolutely you talk about sports you talk about relationships you talk about finding common interest with people and sports for so many of us, you know, is a way to have a conversation and discussion. It was absolute gold and just tremendous insight. Episode three in the books. And David, this was fun. I want to thank all the listeners for listening to the Shine On podcast. Dr. Phil, absolutely tremendous stuff. Just amazing. You can pick up a copy of Dr. Phil's book, The Resilient Couple, on Amazon. You can follow him on LinkedIn as well. To the listeners on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, thank you for listening. Please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon.